I was thinking that um, we could start by just describing the problem space, uh, sort of doing a very small introduction on ourselves and then open it up to questions from the audience. I really like the format that um, Jim O'Shaughnessy used last week, launching OSV, where he basically brought people up. And because the, as you know, the total information war, whatever you want to call it, the information environment is so complicated that there's probably a wide variety of um, positions of our, you know, some people will be like really informed and some people will be like, wait, what are you guys talking about? So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think brief introductions and then, you know, just kind of, um, I don't know if, you know, Q&A is the right way to put it, but, you know, certainly, um, you know, bring up whatever you think is most important. And, you know, I'd like to, you know, uh, ideally connect it to things that are, you know, um, not necessarily in the momentary news cycle, you know, certainly over the past week or month or so, um, if possible, so we can kind of put things into more context. Great. All right. Why don't you kick it off and introduce yourself and I'll introduce me and then I'll give a little bit of primer and then we'll just get going. We're here at yeah. one. Yeah. So I'm Wolf McNally. I'm uh, a technologist. Uh, I call myself a creative technologist and I've been writing software for well over 40 years. Um, uh, I've written many iOS apps, including like the, the iOS app for uh, eHarmony, the matchmaking service. I, I'm best known for my critical thinking software, Flying Logic at flylogic.com, which is used all around the world. Um, and uh, yeah, and certainly helping people think better is a big part of one of my is a big part of my my mission in life. Um, and uh, that I think dovetails nicely with you, Mike. So let's hear about you. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a little bit younger than Wolf, um, although I have been programming for going on 25 years now. Um, I got really interested growing up on the internet, Usenet, bulletin board services in the way that information propagated over networks. So I was pretty early on involved on uh, the Usenet channel Alt.Parallels, which was all about using, you know, Beowulf, which are commodity supercomputers to do computing. And then everything sort of cascaded for the, from there for me um, until 2008, when I shifted from being an alleged hacker to being sort of more of like a white hat person. And then a few years later, formally entered the workforce. Since then, I've been working on infrastructure that billions of people use uh, on a semi-frequent basis. And um, now I am trying to teach all the things that I've learned because I've seen a lot of people in my personal circles succumb to uh, really bad information diets and then have not great outcomes. And I think like all of us, I'm just trying to learn. And I think part of that is sharing what I have learned and hopefully um, get something positive out of it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the most interesting parts of your message is to characterize things as an information diet. We're all gobbling information every day. And, you know, what we take in is, you know, what, what you are what you eat, right? So uh, I think it's a really valuable way of looking at things. Great. Okay, so where should we begin? What should we talk about first, Wolf? What do you think? Um, well, what's top of mind right now for you? Obviously, you know, there's a huge amount going on in the world. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm you know, becoming more and more aware of, you know, geopolitics through people like Peter Zion. And, you know, I'm very interested in the rise of AI. Of course, I also work in crypto, in cryptocurrency, blockchain world and so on. So I'm, I'm very interested in a lot of these technologies that are shaping our world. Um, but, you know, I want to make these, the understanding of these things relatable to people and, and help people, you know, um, learn how to think about it. But, you know, what are you thinking about right now that you, you, you I guess you would hope people, um, you know, would be thinking better about than they clearly are right now? 
Yeah, I think for me, upstream of those issues, all of them are very interesting, is what is the problem, right? Like I keep coming back to how are we defining what the problem is? Because we all have to make decisions all the time based on limited information in a timely manner. And we can quickly and easily get overwhelmed by uh, the number of sources and just the amount of information. And so I, I'm always coming back to, okay, what is the problem and what is my sort of best way forward? And spent a lot of time reaching out to other sense makers to ask this question, what is the problem? And as far as I can tell, the problem is that the amount of information we're asked to deal with on a regular basis is orders of magnitude, a hundred, a thousand times more than the uh, system that we use for understanding that information. And what do I mean by that? If you could imagine your great, great grandparents, they were just as smart as we are today, just as capable, but the amount of information they were exposed to on a daily, weekly, monthly basis was much less than us. And as a result, they had more time to think about each piece of information and to process both the source and everything about it. Whereas today, I'm asked to make decisions on information that comes to me in a very rapid fire, sort of like news media way. And I went to school and I learned how to go to the library and how to research things and how to cite my sources and all of that and sort of what the best way is for doing that. And I don't find the environment that we're in today well suited to that sort of deliberate thought process, right? Where um, uncovering the truth of something is important, yes, and um, being able to act on that information with a lot of noise and on a quick enough basis, it seems to be where things have headed. And so for me, I'm always trying to come back to, okay, what is the problem? There's too much information. Great, how am I gonna scope down the information? Well, the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna identify, you know, what is it that I'm trying to do? What is it I'm trying to learn? And be very deliberate about pruning my diet, like you said, we are what we eat, um, of things that are not good, right? So that's, gen from a Genesis point, that's where I start, right? So I think of it like it's a buffet, like Fresh Choice. I don't know if you remember that place. You can literally eat whatever you want. If you watch people get food at a buffet, they get a little bit of everything. Um, and then they come back for the thing they actually want to eat. And that's kind of how I look at the information environment is that we have all of this choice. And I really got to be specific about what it is that I'm going up to eat uh, when I go and I select it. And one thing, one uh, thing that I sparked on when you said that it was, you know, of course, a, a lot of what I deal with in terms of, you know, the my tool, flying logic, and all that is what's called theory of constraints. And what the, one of the first ideas of theory of constraints is understanding your goal. And a goal is what, however you measure success. Uh, that can be, you know, obviously individuals can have many goals. Companies often have a goal of making money. But if you don't understand the goal, if you don't understand what you're after when you say go after information. Uh, then, you know, your outcome is going to be directionless drifting. And so what I hear you saying is that, you know, you need to be very tar targeted in how you seek out information and the quality of information you seek out. But that requires a certain amount of self-reflectiveness I don't think a lot of people have right now. Yeah, I, I don't know about that. I feel <laughs> there's a lot of people that say, oh, man, people's ability to make decisions is getting worse. Our critical thinking is getting worse. All of this kind of gloom and doom. And I just don't see that as being true. And sort of like my thought experiment to prove this is 
in the 1960s, if you were to ask school children what they wanted to be when they grew up, they would tell you astronaut, president, CEO, right? And today, when you ask those same school children what they want to be when they grow up, they say influencer, influencer, influencer. Now, I know mm -hmm. you might be saying, oh, this is terrible. But if you think of it in terms of there's this guy, LaRoe, who wrote Reinventing Organizations. He gives a framework for how humans organize themselves into work. In the 1960s, the CEO, the president, and the astronaut are all the person at the top of a great pyramid that they have this enormous leverage, right? How many thousands of people were involved in the Apollo program so that three people mm -hmm. could go to the moon and only two would actually land on the moon, right? It's absurd yep. how many people there are. And it's the same with the CEO and it's the same with the president. Today, as networks become more important, the network node, so that would be the, the sort of the person that has the most following, if you will, the curator has so much more power than uh, even a CEO. Like you could argue that a lot of what's happening in business are basically frontline employees who have been able to weaponize the conversation of the moment online against their CEOs into adopting all of these really radical policies. And you saw that, you know, play out over and over again with a number of companies where they've taken these progressively more extreme positions and often to their de detriment. I think there's a a meme about this, go woke, go broke. Um, and, and so you see that happening, right? And so you're, then you're like, mm -hmm. well, who really has the power? Is it the CEO of Disney or is it that frontline employee? <laughs> and sort of we're watching yeah. in real time that battle. So I take back that people are less critically able. I just think that instead of being able to go a mile deep and an inch wide, they have to go a mile wide and an inch deep. And so they're just totally frazzled. Unfortunately, I think that that attracts a lot of people to that influencer role who uh, are basically, you know, attempting to get by on, you know, say youth and looks rather than skill or wisdom or anything uh, deeper to contribute to the conversation. It literally is, a, a, you know, a mile wide and inch deep. And that's, you know, obviously you and I, I, I think I'm, I'm fair to characterize, you know, we, we are nascent influencers ourselves, but we also have a lot of life experience. And I think some pretty deep things to share. We're not showing off cosmetics or uh, or our bodies or anything like that, you know? Uh, well, and, well, hang on, uh, hang, you know, so go hang ahead. on. I want to push back there because sure there, if you, if I, we have a mutual friend who's a doctor and he always said this, which totally mm -hmm. shocks me, which is that, um, among healthcare professionals, they have the same incidence of obesity and metabolic dysfunction as the general population. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. what I think is happening with the curators is that we are relinking authenticity and, um, basically like responsibility and authority, right? So the doctor may know the right information, but if they're a fat doctor, I don't really want to listen to them. And so yeah. when I see a curator online, and many of them are, you know, very close to us on the internet, one of the ways that I sort of evaluate their information is, um, how is it working out for them? Is this the kind of yes. person that I want to be like at like a total level? And then, mm -hmm. you know, iteratively evaluate every single statement that they're making and then asking myself, OK, if I follow the information that they're getting, that they're giving me, am I getting the result that I'm looking for? And does the the evidence that they're presenting for a particular position weigh against the magnitude of that position? Right. So like right. Uh, Elon famously says, if there were really aliens that's a really extreme claim. That's a very large claim. And so the amount of evidence that we should have for that is 
massive. And I think when I'm looking at uh, influencers, so I'm not talking about like the, I don't actually want to label people specifically, but there are Gen Z influencers who seem to be very much like, I'm hot, you know, whatever. I'm not talking about those people. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about people that are in the trenches, who are keeping logs, who are presenting information day after day. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're really contrarian and it's very difficult to listen to their information because it challenges a core assumption that I have. And then of course that's a whole rationale for, for challenging that. Um, Yeah. I, I, I think the curators that we're selecting for are really quite good only when their message is uh, contrarian to the zeitgeist. So there's a lot of curators, influencers whose messages align with the zeitgeist. And it's very Mm -hmm. difficult to sort out the legitimacy of what they're saying, the reality of it from the social truth of the, of the swarm that they belong to. Whereas there are people, especially early on in COVID, this is where my eyes opened who had positions that were against the zeitgeist and that there seemed to be evidence for. And what I find Mm -hmm. amazing about a lot of these guys is that they sit just at the edge of the Overton window. um, And Mm -hmm. so they don't get canceled but they say things that are the opposite of what the mainstream is saying, and yet they don't get canceled. And that tells me that there's probably something here, because if they said something that was opposite of the mainstream, that wasn't actually based in some kind of reality that I might share, I think they would get immediately canceled. Sort of like how we walk by the guy in San Francisco, you know, I think Wolfie also lives here in the Bay Area, who's screaming about the end of the world, um, you know, down there on Market Street. You sort of walk by that person, say, oh, that's very sad. When there are people online who commit the same sins, I sort of walk by them as well. Um, And so they don't really get these really massive followings. But then there are people who are like, hey, you know, there's something going on with this COVID thing. We should check that out. Right. And I remember being in San Francisco um, with Nancy Pelosi saying, you know, it's all fine. And then all of a sudden it wasn't fine. And it's interesting for me to to have watched people change their uh, positions. And it was challenging to me because I got really stressed out. You know, I got COVID and went to the hospital on February 5th, 2020. Mm. Um, and I'm like 30 years, I don't know how old I was. I was in my early thirties and healthy. And so I was like, Oh my God, this is really going to wipe people out. Um, anyway. So just, yeah. Thoughts. Um, just one quick thing I want to kind of get closure on that you said is, you know, obviously when we talk about people, uh, kids aspiring to be influencers, often they are aspiring to be those Instagram kind of influencers. So if you want to separate those out and say, okay, you know, not those, that's fine. I agree definitely that there's a lot of people who um, have a lot of deep thinking, none of whom with uh, none of whom I agree with entirely, but are all worth listening to and, you know, kind of, um, you know, seeking out those people and then how to sift through what they're saying, because they're not, they're obviously not all in agreement is one of the big challenges. I think um, an aware individual has right now uh, in this, you know, like you said, this information overload environment. Um, did you want to, you know, get some other uh, speakers in here? Yeah, I'd love if anybody uh, wants to ask a question for us to answer. Uh, please raise your hand, and I, I don't know how it works, but I think Wolf, I will see it, and then I'll invite you to be a speaker if you if I see your hand raised, and uh, then you can just you know uh, take the microphone and uh, uh, let us know what you're thinking about. Um, um, so uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not seeing any hands raised yet. So uh, okay. <laughs> if somebody just yeah, so if somebody does want to, if I see that, I will definitely uh, um, invite you up. And um, let's see. Okay, hang on.
Get a quick view of speaker requests. Okay, how do I do that? Yeah, otherwise I could talk about a whole bunch of issues. Okay, there is there is a request. Yeah, okay. bring him up. Yep. Yeah, so uh, Andrew Schnecker. There you go. You are now a speaker. Um, what's on your mind? Awesome. Please. Love the conversation so far. One thing I'd love to get your take on is I see a lot of people who I think unnecessarily add to their information environment by saying, I need to get both sides of this perspective. And I think... Sometimes it may be warranted and sometimes it might not be, but I just wanted to get your take, Michael, on um, kind of listening to the, oh, I need to listen to Fox News or I need to listen to CNN and it's and kind of how you cluster, you know, what your signal is. And is that just kind of an outdated way of thinking? Yeah. Thank you for the question, Andrew. Um, this is a complicated topic because I remember growing up that I used to read the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and many, many other periodicals to try and get a balanced perspective on what was going on. And to put this as simply as possible, in the previous sense-making environment, um, there was consensus among people who read the news. Like you could read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and have a pretty good grasp of what was going on politically and in business. There was a good sense back then of where we were and where we were going, right? So we, uh, we had pretty wide-scale agreement on A, and we had pretty wide-scale agreement on B, right? So we would say something like, um, there are 8% of Americans are unemployed, and wouldn't it be great if we could get to a place where only 4% of Americans were unemployed, right? And then you would watch editorials in the Wall Street Journal or other newspapers argue for different positions. And so the arguments were largely how to go from A to B. And they you know, would fall down on sort of this sort of uh, dichotomous or sort of two-sided politics, you know, left, right. And so some people would say, oh, we should focus on equality of opportunity. And some people would say, oh, we should focus on quality of outcome. And, and that was the general format of the conversations that we were having. What I have seen happen in my lifetime is that the conversations we are having today are no longer about the best way to go from A to B. We are endlessly discussing what A is. And so what I find is that if you try to consume arguments from someone who is talking about the best way to go from A to B, and then somebody else has considers A to be something different, call it A prime, to B, you will go psychotic. Um, and I have watched people do this where they try to consume information because they're, they're at a fundamental switch track about fundamental definitions. As an example, suppose you have two doctors that are discussing policies related to the COVID-19 epidemic and vaccine, a very hot topic right now and one that we've all felt very acutely. We don't really have a good sense as a society about what the definition of um, died with COVID versus died from COVID, uh, versus sort of like incidental COVID exposure, et cetera, et cetera. And all of the mainstream statistics that we got during that entire pandemic about what was the case, what was not, that was all very interpretive based on where you sat in the information environment. Moreover, um, it's not just limited to sort of complex topics like COVID, we don't have any consensus at a societal level on what it means to be a woman, right? You have one group of people that have one definition and one group of people that have another definition. Now, of course, 
if you're acting on one definition versus another through a long enough time, you'll be able to see the results of that. But from a policy perspective, if you have people that fundamentally disagree on the definitions, there's no way to reconcile their policy positions. And so, you, Michael, do you think that there is a, you know, a strategic element to how people are using words? You know, obviously, the, the, the analogy that gets used a lot, I use a lot myself is, you know, Orwell's Newspeak, you know, as that redefining words or removing words or banning words um, is, a, is being used strategically now. And that's actually a big part of where these, you know, we can't agree on what A is anymore because um, it's being strategically redefined by people who have you know, a lot of uh, cultural and, uh, and societal pull to be something that they think is better, more inclusive, but, you know, is actually in, in you know, from another perspective, very undermining of, of uh, the structure of society. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's also, that's a more complicated uh, question as well that actually gives us an even larger surface to talk about, which is, well, first of all, for all of human history, we have argued about the definitions of words people in power have in order to expand their power, right? And what you can see is that people who are anti those in power will come up with a different definition, et cetera, et cetera. The reason why I think it's worse today in terms of these definitions and why we have so much more difficulty is because we never reach a consensus, right? So in the olden days, when you had to distribute information via newspapers or broadcast television or on horseback, there was a cost to distributing that information. And as a natural consequence of the fact that there was a cost, you would build what are called supply side economies of scale. So the New York Times, because it had a higher readership, therefore had more people receiving its newspapers, therefore could hire better journalists, therefore could report the news um, more accurately than a smaller regional newspaper could, right? That's what it means to have a supply side economy of scale is that you, you tend to see the cheapest costs come to dominate. Because the internet has made information free to distribute or near free, um, now we see demand side economies of scale taking place, right? And the easiest one to point to is Google. People don't use Google because it's cheaper than Bing. Um, as you know, Wolf, I worked in search for a number of years, and I did millions of tests on Google and Bing search results. They're virtually identical, and yet people have a preference for Google over Bing, um, and it has nothing to do with costing. And you can see this play out in other sort of technology industries. So when we talk about like antitrust, which is a supply side economy of scale thing applied to a technology company like Facebook, which is a demand side of economy of scale. It's very, very confused and it doesn't work. And so it's this um, this problem. And I know I'm wandering a little bit, but I, I just like fundamentally, if you want to look at if we want to bring in Boyd's OODA loop and sorry, everybody, um, observe, orient, decide, act. The area of action has moved from observation to orientation. Right. So when information is free to distribute, then it's very difficult, if not impossible, to keep secrets. And so all the money that you used to use and spend on secret keeping, you now spend on orientation, which is to say mis and disinformation. So there's an economic incentive for people that want to act in the environment to hijack words and their meanings to disorient the collective action of their adversary, right? And they do that by flooding the zone with misinformation and disinformation. And the problem is, 
that in a war, traditionally, there would be two sides. And we had evolved to a place where um, those sides were known, right? They wore uniforms. There was a code of conduct. Yes, people don't really follow the code of conduct, but there was one. Um, and they would try to, and, and their societies would hold them at some level accountable. And then when we talk about what's called a total war, uh, that would be a point where these civilians were just as being attacked as the individuals were. And that's what's happened in our information war is that it's become a total war in the sense that it's no longer nation states that are doing spy versus spy stuff in the observation part of the OODA loop. It's everyone doing orientation stuff because every person who's connected to our media and information environment is both a civilian and a combatant. Every time that you retweet, every time that you read something, every time that you spread a mimetic idea, whether it's a, like an actual image that's a meme or talking to your friend, you are reinforcing or denigrating a particular position. And it might be a position that has high resonance with you and might be in alignment with your goals and incentives, or it might be one that's not. And again, the, because all this money is now going towards mis and disinformation, and, and the whole point is to retard your enemy's ability to form consensus to block them from acting in the environment. And I apologize that we just went into like a crazy, all this theory, but that is what's happening, right? And that is driving the converse. Like there are obviously people who believe some of the insane things that people are saying what a woman is versus not, but there's more people who are using it to their advantage for whatever purpose that they may have. It's kind of like the people who are most adamant about homelessness being solved in San Francisco are the ones who get the most money from homelessness being solved in San Francisco. It's, it's really sick and gross. You don't want to look into any of this stuff too much. Yep. Uh, by the way, I, uh, I put a couple of tweets up. I'm not sure how to quite put things in the nest of the uh, space yet. So I'm, I'm still figuring that out. Uh, but I did put a couple of tweets on, on my, uh, <clears throat> on my, um, uh, timeline, one of which is a, a video I did recently on what's called the persuasive definition, which is, you know, uh, essentially how people define things to uh, to persuade people as opposed to just merely inform. And the other is the OODA loop diagram, which uh, when I figure out how to put it, these things up in the nest, I will. Um, is there, Andrew, did you want to ask a follow-up or is there anybody else who would like to speak? Please just, uh, you know, mark yourself as a speaker and I'd be happy to bring you up any time. I want to ask a question to Andrew. So Andrew, uh, I think you're in the healthcare industry. Do you see what we're talking about play out there? Uh, definitely, you see it play out, you know, and I think you touched on this a little bit. But, you know, I think that the best example of it is is in the kind of like peer-reviewed community. The peer-reviewed research is kind of something that's been relied upon to kind of formulate somewhat of a consensus. And I think if we've learned one thing through you know, COVID is, is, uh, at least some doctors I know that are talking on Twitter spaces are talking about how, you know, for the first time I've, I've kind of seen that there might be something behind these top five journals and that, you know, there was a study, it looked good. We were excited about it. And then all of a sudden it came out and then it was forced to be retracted or, you know, something they're like that. It felt like there was a hand on the lever, you know, and I think from the, the aspect of trying to form consensus around even like a treatment for COVID, you know, and a consensus around is, I think there's this, this fight between, well, we came through the institutions, 
We trust the institutions. So we have to do what the institutions say, but they have to balance that. If you ask nine out of 10 doctors, does pharma, do the pharmaceutical companies have a tremendous amount of influence over the medicine they practice? They will all say without question, absolutely. You know, you can point out, hey, you know, this vaccine happened, to, you know, bivalent. It was tested against five mice. You know, yeah, they're like, yeah, kind of wild, huh? And then they'll just go get right in line, you know. But I, I'm seeing more and more, I think, a lot of it, some people are reaching their breaking point. Some people are just trying to get out. I think some people are, are saying, hey, let's kind of recalibrate here because this is not the way that we've traditionally done things. But it's that, that uh, at the end of the day, it's, there's that, it's very hard to stick your head out when you have, you know, such great financial interests like, oh, I have student loan debt. I have bills to pay. You know, it's who actually wants to be that person to stick their head out and fight for, you know, what even though in their gut they believe to be true, um, you know, and then that persuades so many people, you know, and and those ones that are sticking their head up, you know, it's kind of like they just get whacked down. You know, it's it's I, I think some I saw a tweet today where somebody was like, you know, objective, really no skin in the game. They're just kind of like, hey, I'm seeing a lot of things about the vaccine that you know, seem like is becoming a consensus that this thing is not good. Um, and then the, the reaction was just like, you know, very, very positive. And someone was like, where do I get the other side? And then, you know, yesterday I made a comment on somebody who was very much for it saying, hey, have you looked at this? I get dunked on. So it's like I have two different threads going. I've tapped into like a pro on a topic of health and then, and someone negative. On, I'm getting dunked in one side i'm getting liked in the other and all the people who are for something they want to see a credentialed person and it's i'm sitting back kind of in the middle of all this kind of surveying the landscape of healthcare and going if the people with the credentials are starting to stand up and say this is a problem and then they're getting canceled how do we how do we move forward how do we rebuild consensus do we just have to kind of build awareness of the faults that exist within the system or do we build a new system or it, it just seems like this is going to be something that's going to be a long grind forward, taking years and decades to kind of see how this all plays out. So Michael, if you, you know, when you address you. that, would you can also kind of address the idea of, you know, how this plays into the value of freedom of speech, because obviously, you know, freedom of speech is a constitutional right. It's not necessarily, you know, uh, protected outside that, but it's, you know, it's a value that I think that is being, you know, we're kind of speaking uh, uh, at with this conversation. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into um, sort of like the derivation of freedom of speech in the West and sort of what it means. But I would say that what Drew brought up, which is this, um, the violence of excommunication as a mechanism to enforce consensus in a group is a problem for institutions when those institutions are not able to be accountable to the people that put them in place. So for example, um, the CDC comes up with guidance and in a perfect world, the CDC has collected information, has run it through a collection of experts they have voted and come to some kind of consensus on what the position of the institution will be. And then they put that out to their uh, people, in this case, doctors in the middle of a pandemic. 
And then those doctors execute on what the CDC has said. The problem is that there is a lot of evidence that that process has been corrupted through differing incentives, right? So you might call it regulatory capture. You might call it the revolving door of business relationships between members at the height, at the top of these organizations and industry. Um, And as Drew pointed out, you know, a lot of doctors will tell you there's an influence for pharmaceuticals. And of course, when there's an influence, a financial influence, that's who funds the, the journals. That's who funds the studies. That's who funds the medicine. And so then if you are an independent doctor, right, and you have a question about what has happened institutionally, the position that you're in, and the institution set, sees that question as threatening, then they they excommunicate you. And so if you're in a situation where you have $500,000 in medical debt, or you need to have the institutional support to get clients, because if you're not a member of the AMA, um, you can't basically practice medicine in the United States. That is a very strong incentive for you not to question the information that's there, even though you might know, as Andrew pointed out, that your patients are suffering from the standard of care, right? In an ideal system, we would like to see that information trickle back up and then the position of those institutions to change. And my biggest contention throughout this whole thing is not that the CDC or the FDA or the NIH is wrong. It's that they're slow. We saw on the ground people responding to COVID faster and more effectively than the government. And then the government policies came in and basically uh, swept that aside. You know, like people stopped purchasing things uh, in early March of 2020 because they were concerned about this virus. They had seen some what now appear to be fake videos coming out of China. But nevertheless, they had seen some videos that scared them. And so they stopped using their credit cards. They stopped going out. And a few days later, it was the president who announced, "Okay, we're going to do a you know, a full scale shutdown, but effectively people had already shut down. So the network of people had already done what they were supposed to do. They'd already come to a conclusion on what was the best thing to do, which was a, in my opinion, a precautionary principle, let's wait and see. Um, And then what was very fascinating is that network quickly found out within a few weeks that, you know, there was a very specific group of people that were going to have trouble, but for the most of everybody else, there wasn't going to be an issue, but then the government didn't relent. And so we got in this, this point where the institution figured out, hey, we can expand power and we can um, work and there's no accountability. And so, and there's no accountability for your institution to the people that you're supposed to be serving. This is a real problem. And then you get that situation where the excommunication thing is a problem. And like to Drew's point, this is a collective experience that we're going through that will probably last the rest of our lives. Like then there's going to be rounds of people saying, Oh, well, we can reform these institutions and we can elect new leadership in. And I'm all for that. And I'm going to vote for them and I'm going to do that. But I, I actually think that um, fundamentally because the internet exists and makes information free to distribute that the model of decision-making has permanently shifted from consensus to resonance and the economics behind that shift I think it will take us two generations for the majority of people in society to figure that out. Sorry, Wolf, I interrupted you. That's okay. That's uh, I think I, th- I think the distinction you made just between consensus and resonance is a, a 
really important one, and I definitely would like to explore that more with you in uh, in our future spaces. Um, Owen, I think you uh, you uh, asked to come up as a speaker. I'd like to hear what your what your thoughts are. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think one of my questions is as we look at this concept of information war, you know, and I compare it to like kinetic war. Typically, in the past, you would think of a war as a conflict between two opposing sides, and what you're describing seems like it's not like that at all anymore because you have all these different participants that have their own interests and maybe they're all fighting. Um, so one of my questions would be, how do you even identify, you know, like friend and enemy in a conflict where it's not really clear who's on what side or who might be cooperating or, you know, where you stand in all of this? Yeah. I wonder if friend and enemy is even a meaningful concept. Michael, what do you think? I was going to say, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about. The first one is, the way the U.S. government responded to the Polish MIGs is really fascinating to me. And just to give everybody a like, brief recap, during the Ukraine crisis, Poland offered to send MIGs, which are like planes, uh, fighter planes, to Ukraine. And Russian-made planes, right? Uh, unclear to me. Certainly USSR-made planes. I don't know if they're Russian-made or what the story okay, was. Well, yeah, USSR, for, you know, Cold War era. Right. Fighters, yeah. But the thing that was crazy to me was that in a 24 hour period, you had the White House, the State Department, the Department of Defense, the Polish people and NATO all releasing this con contradictory statements. And in theory, all of these groups are supposed to be on the same side. And if you studied the Cuban Missile Crisis, you'll remember that Kennedy and uh, his brother disagreed with the generals, but you didn't have the Pentagon issuing a press conference that was in opposition to what the White House was saying. You had this sort of unified front that the government took. And in this Polish MiG crisis, you had all of these different entities in the government, which I'll contend are all basically mafias, um, who are all trying to get the sto their story out there first to, be, to take the high ground, if you will, narratively, right? So I think that, first of all, Owen, that is a really interesting question when you talk about friend versus enemy, because in theory, all of those entities, the White House, the State Department, the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, um, the NATO and the, 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 Pol the Poles, they should have all been aligned, but they weren't. And so we saw that they weren't now, and we didn't see that before. And that, I think, gives us a, a broader sense of what's going on in society, right? Like there's this conversation around, you know, has the U.S. soft balkanized? Are there a bunch of different mafias, right? And a mafia is a 150-person group. And it, it, it basically, like, when your institution fails because it cannot reach consensus, and we can make an argument that because we can't agree on what the definition of a woman is, then our institutions have failed, then what happens is, is that obviously the institution as a structure still exists, but it breaks into all of these factions and humans can only really hold about 150 people in their relationship network. And so the large, the, these factions, if you will, these mafias only get to be that big. And so they like vie for power inside the institution. And then we see this happening outside. And so then the question is like, who's a friend and who's an enemy. I don't really think of it like that at all. I think of it more like whose interests are aligned with mine and whose aren't. And keep in mind, that some of these curators that we're talking about, they have an agenda. And when we're evaluating their information, we need to be really clear to understand what their bias is. 
um, and make sure that we're following them just for the topics that we are interested in. Like everyone, I have a bias. Wolf has a bias. That's more mm-hmm. than what it is as opposed to friend and enemy. Sorry, Wolf. I think, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I think that, you know, when I, when I listen to the various kinds of influence I listen to, I mean, you know, take like Ben Shapiro, the Shapiro at the Daily Wire. He's conservative. He's very upfront about his bias. I'm not a conservative. I'm more libertarian leaning. Uh, although, you know, some, you know, back in the nineties, some people would have called me a leftist because of certain things I, I uh, ascribe to nowadays. A lot of people would call me on the right, but I, I see myself as on the side of freedom and I mean, personal autonomy. Um, and, uh, you know, whichever side is upholding those, you know, well, you know, I'm going to get identified more with that, but I, I, I personally don't know if I was either, but, I'm very upfront. My my first principles, you know, tend towards you know personal sovereignty, even leaning towards anarcho capitalists, and my politics lean towards libertarian. But I agree with what a lot of people on uh, in certain you know groups are saying about the culture wars and things like that. And for me, um, you know, but I don't agree with everything they say. And so I think you know, being able to say, okay, I agree or I don't agree, and why, and this person is either telling me, helping me think about something, uh, or they're telling me what to think without revealing their agenda. That's kind of how I do my identify friend and foe uh, in situations like this, because if they're telling me what to think without clearly identifying their agenda, um, or if they're failing to tell me how to think about things, because clearly they're not considering things from a, 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 a more rounded point of view, uh, you know, then, uh, or at least even, even they're not even aware of their opposition's arguments, let's put it that way. Um, that's a huge red flag for me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I won't go listen to the Daily Wire one moment and then Young Turks on the next moment because I don't find as much value in the, in the Young Turks personally. But I do, will occasionally go listen to them just to see what they're saying. Um, and, but that doesn't mean the truth is somewhere right between them, them either. I have to use my own ability to think critically about these things um, and decide when they're making valid points. And I think that that's incumbent upon everybody who really wants – uh, a truly free society is to is to think for themselves and pay attention to people who help them think for themselves instead of tell them what to think. Yeah, I 100% agree. I, I use a very simple model as well, um, which is basically the novice intermediate expert model. So, and I try to orient both the person speaking and myself in that model, and I'll just give it very simply. A novice person is con- is always concerned with what are the rules of an information t- space, right? And any human area can be basically broken down to five to seven heuristics that define 70 to 80% of the outcomes in that area, right? And so I'm, I'm always, when I go and learn something new, I'm like, okay, what are the five to seven key ideas that are going to define this space? That's me as a novice. Someone who's an intermediate is going to ask when and how those seven rules are violated. And that experience of figuring out when and how those rules don't work is about exploring the frontier of a space. And that is where all the innovation happens. And then an expert is gonna talk about why the rules of the novice are the way that they are. And so one thing that's really important for me is not to listen to people that say why something is, if I don't even know what the rules are in a space. And that's how I can tell pretty quickly that I'm being, cause I don't know, I don't have any basis cause I didn't do the hard work of the intermediate uh, to figure out when and how the rules are violated. So then I can't uh, figure out whether or not what somebody's saying is why. So if they say like, this is happening and this is why that to me is the, is the red flag. Cause I'm like, I'm actually a novice in this topic, not a expert. 
Um, and by the way, I want to you know continue inviting other speakers up. We've had a number of people join us, uh, and uh, really happy to have you here. And you know, you're welcome to have the microphone as well. Um, Owen or Andrew, if you want to um, you know um, ask or speak a follow up, then you're welcome to unmute and just go ahead and do that. Anybody else, just uh, add yourself as a speaker and be happy to bring you up. Um, Owen. Yeah. Um, well, another question I have is that you know, using this lens of an information war, um, like what would it look like for a war to be won or lost? Or is it that we're just perpetually in a state of war and there is no real peace? We are at war with East Asia. We've always been at war with East Asia. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? So I don't know what the answer to that is. And I don't know if we ever actually are going to see it in our lifetime, right? When the, in, when the printing press was invented in the 1430s, we didn't get the Treaty of Westphalia until the 1740s, and arguably that whole thing didn't settle out until the development of nuclear weapons in 1945, right? How many generations was that? It's 400 years. So I don't know, I don't know, Owen. <laughs> it may not be in our lifetime that we see this thing resolved, for sure. Well, just it just seems very complex to think about, you know, in terms of a traditional war, because you, again, you have so many different factions, and it, it may look maybe a lot more like, you know, back in the days of tribal warfare, where everybody might be fighting with everybody else, not necessarily having two aligned sides, and so you know that that might look a lot more like this, where it's like there is no, no there isn't necessarily a, a clear distinction between war and peace anymore. Because it's just every faction is going to continue to fight for their cause, right? And there may never be sort of a, a peace where that isn't happening. I think we are definitely talking about, you know, we were living in an age of fourth generation warfare where a lot of the information, you know, a lot of it is information and fighting for people's hearts and minds. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that where the main stand we each have to take is is as individuals and as you know people who are part of families communities is to is to make our first and best stand there, and then as we have energy, you know, participate in the larger, um, you know, uh, um, you know, conflict of winning people's hearts and minds of 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 being you know of of showing that we can be better than than you know a lot of what gets thrown us in, at us and you know, from politicians and the media and so on. It's, you know, really kind of raw sewage they're expecting us to consume. Yeah, and if you read The Sovereign Individual, Owen, I, I'm pretty sure you have, um, the logic of violence is shifting, and we see that with the internet. And I do believe it's going to look a lot more like a hunter-gatherer society or a lot more like a, um, you know, city-state wars where it's like Venice versus Milan versus Rome versus everybody else as opposed to these sort of, you know, this is a settled issue in the empire. Because at any moment, your argument, your meme could convert somebody else. But yeah, I don't know what it looks like for it to be over. Maybe maybe that means that we're not in a, in a total information war because there is no such thing as over. It's a good question. So, Michael, one of your one of kind of the key ideas that you know your your career is revolving around is the idea of sense making, and maybe um, a number of people in our audience are not really familiar with the concept. I know that um, uh, I think his name is um, Michael Snowden, who invented was something called the Kinevin uh, framework. You know, he identifies uh, sense making as um, a way of making sense of the world that allows us to operate within it. 
uh, and that can be individuals or organizations or whatever. But how do you define sense making? And you know, what would you say are some of the core tenets of how you teach sense making and and how people you know can can go about figuring out how to work and you know move in the world effectively? Yeah, I think. First of all, if you want a better understanding of the state of the art and sense making, I would um, direct you toward Daniel Schmachtenberger and Jordan Hall um, and even John Robb. And they're, they're Gen X guys and Abuma. Um, and I, I think it's important to think about it in terms of generations. And I'm a millennial. So they have had decades on me in terms of theory of sense making and all of that. I am mostly concerned with what seems to work for me and the people that I talk about. But largely speaking, sense-making is the system that we use to understand the reality that we exist in. And I think that one of the things from my perspective that the internet has done has made it very difficult, if not impossible, to quash minority reports, so-called minority reports, which would be um, positions, if you think of it like an ecology, it'd be a position in the information ecology that is true for people that stand in that position, right? So if you have 100 people and they're in a building and 95 of them are in a room with windows that's open to the outside and lights coming in and five of them are in a closet where there are no windows and it's dark and you were to ask all of them, you know, is it light or dark outside or is it light or dark? Five of them, the minority would tell you it's dark and 95 would tell you that it's light. And in a traditional world, we can suppress that minority report of the five in the closet and just say that it's light. And so these are the things that you should do in our world. People get to choose whether to stand in the closet or not. And so they can actually stand in the dark. And so for them, you know, the, the advice, you know, bring a flashlight, be careful. You don't run into people. Um, it makes a ton of sense. And if you can't suppress the minority report, then a lot, a lot of things that I thought that I grew up with being told were objectively verifiably true. So when we talk about truth, sort of like, is it independently objectively verifiably true, turn out to be socially constructed. And even things like, is the sky blue, is a socially constructed answer. Um, and basically, when you start recognizing that so much of what our reality is, is socially constructed, uh, it is really, it's really a head fake. But there's also, you know, a lot of people using that idea of everything is a social construction to to deconstruct, you know, uh, a lot of the fabric of society. I mean, you mentioned before, you know, people being un unable to define what a woman is when, you know, to many people growing up, the the, the, the you know the the dictionary edition, definition of adult human female is is you know uh, necessary and sufficient. Um, a lot of people don't feel it's either at this point, uh, or even very well definable. So how do you how do you square those two things? Yeah, I think <laughs> this is one of the key problems that I have with the modern information system is that it used to be very reductionist, very Newtonian, and now it's a lot more like quantum mechanical in the sense that you're basically taking a derivative at the position you occupy in this space in order to come to what is true, and goes on both sides so like you can use it for good or you can use it for ill so you can use this idea of social construction in a bad way or you can use it in a good way and when i say good and bad what i'm ultimately referring to is what is the position that you stand in that's in the most resonance with the experience of reality that you have 
So the reason why I make the choices that I make is because they have the greatest benefit to the mission and goals that I'm trying to accomplish. And I recognize there are people with different mission and goals from me who are going to make different choices. And if I listen to what they say, right, because this is kind of another thing on the internet, everyone is speaking the truth from their perspective. Mm -hmm. Okay. And just because it's a switch track, which is to say two arguments that don't go head to head. And the, the most classic one is pro-life, pro-choice, mm -hmm. right? There's no, there's nobody who's anti-life or anti-choice. Those are very extreme positions, yes. but there are, there's very legitimate arguments for being both pro-life and pro-choice. They just end up screaming past each other. Right. And so you, you, we literally had an example where Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump were both on Twitter and they said something that perceived to be the opposite, but was actually true to both of the sets of people, depending on if they followed Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump. And, and that is, I think is a real mind F for me is that there's going to be people that are going to speak the truth, but because of the way that they describe their reality, it's not going to align with the way that I describe my reality. So I try to go and stand next to people figuratively who have the results that I want to have. I want to link authority and responsibility. I don't want institutional people uh, in charge of making decisions for me that don't have any accountability. Mm -hmm. I seek out doctors who are healthy. I don't go to a dentist with messed up teeth. I don't get my hair cut uh, by a bald woman. Right. Like I, I, I go to the people in my homeschool pod more or less believe similar things to me. And what I think will happen. And, and I don't want to get too esoteric about Twitter as a artificial general intelligence, but you can measure the amount of resonance or engagement for a particular point in relation to every other point in a space to come at what it means to be true for that particular thing. Right, and that over time people will migrate to the position that provides them the most value, and that is, you know, that the core of. I know your question was about what is sense making, but sense making is just basically like, what is the operating system you were born with or developed accidentally? And for most people, it's something you pick up, like language. Even language itself is a funk is a sense making modality, right? Like, if you don't learn about the color blue, you don't see the color blue. Right. There's mm -hmm. tons of concepts. If you don't learn about them, you don't you don't actually perceive them. Um, right. And so sense making as a discipline is recognizing it's kind of like the David Foster Wallace. This is water. OK. And then the one fish says to the other one, well, what's water? They don't even know because it's what they exist in. Sense making right. for most people is the, the way that they're understanding and making decisions in the world. And I think it's too hard to fix our decision making process like because I'm subject to all these biases and like emotional traumas. And I mean, it's, it's really hard. Okay. So the way that I solve this whole problem is I just go upstream and say like, okay, I'm just going to clean up the information that I consume so that as a consequence of that, I make better decisions, but like my actual decision-making is not better. And so in so many ways, sense-making is that system that you have in place that allows you to understand the world. And from my perspective, if you're really clean about the information that you take in, then your downstream decisions are going to become better. And for most of us, that just means don't consume Kim Kardashian content, right? Like don't yeah. follow people on Twitter <clears throat> that say shit that makes you angry. Well, I think if we look at a lot of what, you know, what we consume, we can, we can pretty much, you know, separate a lot of wheat from chaff and say, yeah, I, I could use more of the wheat, less of the chaff. I mean, personally, I think that 
fostering a culture of being willing to be challenged about your ideas, uh, even your deeply cherished ones, and be able to be willing to either stand and defend them or or say, you're right, I, there's something I, I need to think about more deeply, you know, to, to, to be willing to walk with Socrates and, and, and reach a point of, of knowing confusion of aporia, I think is actually part of our, should be part of our culture, but has, has um, fallen out of disfavor. And I, a person, I would like to really bring that back because, I mean, I haven't always believed the things I believe now. And a big part of how I came to believe some of the things I believe now is because I was challenged on those things. And yet I don't see a lot of people being willing to give or receive that gift at this point. So that's, you know, that's one of my yeah, huge but Wolf, issues. I mean, come on, people having to interrogate their themselves is so difficult. Yes, Every single day, there, there are people in this room right now who say things that I'm like, you can't honestly be right. And then, and then I have to realize that it's myself who's wrong and that they're right. And that is so difficult. That absolutely. So absolutely. And, and, no one's going to do that. And I've been wrong so many times and I, I actually... I, I'm actually very happy when I'm shown to be wrong because then I get to be more right going forward. And for me, in my mind, it's the same thing as going to the gym uh, or, you know, uh, or exercising one's will to, you know, you know, for example, as a creative, you know, I'm a tech creative technologist. When I sit down to work of, of knowing that I've, I've triumphed over my desire to procrastinate and do other less important things for the more important thing and so on, you know, these things make you stronger. And I think that that's, that's all part of that. So if you're, if you're willing to, you know, eat well and exercise, you ought to be willing to exercise your mind as well, not just by merely not eating the donuts of thought, but also by being willing to, you know, really, you know, do the hard work to make sure that what you're eating isn't secretly donuts, you know? <laughs> yeah. All right. We had three minutes left because I also yep. want to be very uh, punctual for everyone who's here. I really appreciate the 20 or so people that have been here this whole time. Thank you guys. Absolutely. Michael, there, do you want to talk about where you are, where, where you can be reached before we wrap up and I'll do the same so we can, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. So I, um, I've been trying unsuccessfully for two, three years now to teach this stuff to people. I find it very difficult. Originally I taught a class. Um, now I, Oh, we got one more request. So I'll just finish that. Now I, yeah. Anyway, uh, go ahead. I, let's bring up Adam actually. That's okay. okay. Well, uh, yeah. So re yeah, real briefly before Adam comes up, I'll just say, you know, uh, you can find me at uh, the um, YouTube slash at beware of wolf podcast, uh, where I do my, my, uh, my uh, videos on critical thinking and better thinking uh, flyinglogic.com for my software. So uh, let's see, let me bring up our, yeah. Adam, hey, Adam. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, perfect. And uh, I want to thank you very much for this, Michael. Uh, I know this was a bit of a challenge for you. It's exciting to do spaces, I think. So thank you very much for allowing me to hear your thoughts. Yeah, you're welcome, Adam. Thank you. Uh, did you have a, a question for us? I did. I thought it was uh, something that I think about a lot, and, and this space has been uh, very informative in many senses. So again, I want, I want to thank you. Um, and certainly, uh, you spent a lot of time thinking about information spaces and wars, and uh, it, it definitely... Uh, it definitely shows in, in what you've discussed. So um, question is that how do you um, try and explain to yourself or to children or to others, particularly to children, even if you're addressing yourself as a child, right, uh, in, in this sense that I described, is how do you explain the way the, way, the, way the world was and uh, try and give some type of a detailed kind of post-mortem on the way the world was in terms of its media, in terms of its freedom, and in terms of its civil rights, and, you know, in terms of all those kind of uh, millions of, you know, discrete transactions that, um, 
you know, that consumed our days and our interpersonal relationships. So are you asking about, Adam, how the milieu has kind of changed since, you know, our, our, our youth to the younger generation at this point? Well, I'm not asking how it's changed because I think we've all observed how it's changed. But I'm asking you how you explain to others how it's changed. In other words, if you've got, I'm, I'm just going to give a, a, a crazy scenario, right? A 10-year-old a, a kid uh, who's now growing up and I'll make any age, okay? It doesn't make a difference who doesn't really have a good sense of what it was before because they've grown up kind of intellectually and emotionally in this environment with remote learning and kind of a, a, a loss of intimacy and interpersonal relationships and all the things that, you know, you've already discussed. Um, so how would you explain to them the way the world was before? So, for example, you know, a lot of us have grandparents Again, and fathers. Adam, who are I don't want to go too far over because I don't want to do forever. I think, Michael, do you understand the question? Would you like to respond? Oh, yeah. I love this question. I get it. Um, I, I actually sidestep this question, Adam. And the reason why I do is because, and I know that's not going to be a satisfying answer, but if, so I have children, very young children. Um, and then, of course, I have like other people who are that age, that's say 10 years old. I don't think it's possible for them to understand the world that we grew up in. And so what I do instead when they ask me, you know, why is it that people are like this? I try to point out to them the things that are the same. The stories that we've told throughout our entire history have the same value system in them, the same morals, the same outcomes. And I try to relate it. So like love, I know, and maybe this is a little bit hippie, but I, like, I try to talk about it in terms of love. I was like, people really care about each other and they really care about the things that they're going after and they try to do it in the best way that they can. And what you experience of the world is much different from the experience of your elders. And this is very common. And it's always happened throughout history that the youth don't understand the elders and the elders don't understand the youth. And it's a little bit different. It's more pronounced now because of the very change. It's been a very rapid change. Um, but what we should, instead of focusing on where you and that person may be different, let's focus on where you can be the same so that when you're communicating with your grandparents or these older people that you can focus on what matters, which is what, which is that value. And, and maybe that's not a satisfying answer, but that's what I've, that's what I've come to yeah. because, sorry, go ahead, Adam. So my question really is, again, with this young child kind of in mind, who already has some type of a systems understanding that's good enough to, to you know, get them to a kind of a complexity is how would you um, explain to them all the social and economic and political disruption that we've seen, all the kind of extraordinary sensory cognitive bombardments, all the kind of disequilibrium and the way it was before when we didn't have that versus now we've seen a total transformation of, the entire world and certainly of our political operating system and our people operating system. And how would you explain to them, you know, how that, uh, how that differential, you know, kind of the mathematics of how that happened? Yeah, I, okay. So this gets into the, I think this is a, a much larger than a sit down one time conversation with a 10 year old. Um, I think it gets into First of all, it starts with the admission that everything that we knew growing up 
and even the way that we understood information has changed. And it has been so radical so quickly for so many that it's been incredibly disorienting. And that if they're going to try to understand their elders, the people that existed in this previous environment, they're going to have to understand that the the change has been so catastrophic. And that I think the word catastrophic is actually appropriate. It's been so catastrophic that they're going to have to have empathy uh, for that person who tries to explain it to them. And then I would go actually and talk about um, the different economic modalities that the human race has been involved in, specifically hunter-gathering, agriculture, industrial economics, and then finally information economics. And I would just explain that all of the people that are older than them have existed in both industrial economics and information, and that they only see the world through informational economics. And I'd be very clear to talk about that supply side, to talk about that demand side, I would, I would be very clear to, to draw all of those contrasts, right? I would say, you know, it used to be that you could just read the newspaper and watch the television for 30 minutes a day. And the next morning you'd go to work and you could talk about the same thing. And now that's not the case. Like literally every person that I know has a different media consumption habit. And so part of it is just, we're all discovering like, hey, what did you watch? Hey, what did you watch? Hey, what did you watch? And even in the way that we're trying to understand the world is broken because, and, and for so many ways, right? Like um, they, a lot of these kids and this, and actually this is a, a broader statement I try to make, which is the kids are going to be okay because the kids have figured it out. <laughs> they figured it out because they, they've grown up natively into it. It's the Gen Xers and the millennials that are hosed from my experience. Um, <laughs> Right. Because we exist uh, and the boomers, I think, I think the boomers are fine. They just they're just older. And so it, it's less relevant. They're not looking at 20, 30 working years trying to exist in this crazy environment. Uh, but the kids, I think they get it. They're just like, OK, yeah, this is the way it is now. And when I say we're like, yeah, man, it's totally, completely different. It's like being hit with a bus um, and you have to have a lot of empathy for people. And then you can you, and then you can if they. Yeah, that's Adam. That's where I would start is basically to try and explain to them to have high empathy um, and that this is really. It's very difficult for someone to be told, I mean, let's just talk about the CDC, OK, so if you're a capital allocator, so you're a hedge fund guy, you have tons of money, billions of dollars. You listen to what the CDC has to say about infectious disease and then. COVID happens and they totally got it wrong or they got it slow, however you want to look at it. And now you can't make capital allocation decisions on that. And now you're realizing that every single source that you used to go to for authoritative information has some kind of regulatory capture, right? It's like a gel man amnesia where you wake up one day and realize that somebody's lying to you. And then you realize that they're all lying to you. And that maybe you're lying to yourself and it's incredibly disorienting and you don't know what you're supposed to do. And so the only thing that you're left doing is figuring out for yourself, well, what is it that I really care about? What is it that we should really care about? What are the relationships like? And then let's focus on those. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll have one last thought um, before we wrap up, which is that, you know, teaching our young people to um, above all find common ground with other people. Like you just said, Michael, you know, find, 
you know, find what our shared objective is, uh, find out what our shared values is, work from that point of view that, you know, uh, if you have no shared objective, then, you know, you basically, you know, either you're either war or you just go your separate ways. But if you can find a common objective with other people, even people who you vehemently disagree with, then you actually have a basis to go on and build deeper understanding. Um, maybe they'll change, maybe you'll change, maybe neither of you change, but you still have that common objective. You still have a reason for, for being at peace with each other. So that's the thing I would emphasize to, to young people at this point. Um, and, you know, yeah, with that, I, I, I was going to say, like, do the thought experiment. Like, you're going to tell somebody who's read the New York Times their entire life that the New York Times has become a partisan, hacky newspaper with an agenda. I mean, good luck. Or NPR, which I grew up listening to. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, or whatever it is. I mean, like, yeah. can you, it, it's catastrophic, right? Imagine that you grow up in a household and every Sunday, your parents read the newspaper and that's how you learn what it means to be educated. You're like, Oh, I love my parents. They read the newspaper. They're informed. They know what's going on in our community. And so you associate reading the newspaper every week with being informed. And so then as an adult, you read the newspaper every week to be informed, but then the, the entire business model of the news changes in the last 20 years and so now you're being misinformed as much as you're being informed. And, and your entire identity as somebody who's educated is wrapped up in reading that newspaper. And then how do you explain that to somebody who never will read a newspaper? I mean, it's just, hmm. <laughs> Adam, it's such a ridiculously hard question. That's why I think we should sidestep it. No, I would like to say I really appreciate everybody coming. We're going to do this again next week. If you want to reach out via Twitter to Wolf or I on topics that you specifically want to talk about, uh, please do. I think next week I'm going to talk a little bit more about how to construct a sense-making environment. Um, that's kind of going to be my focus. But um, yeah, I really appreciate um, everybody's time today. And Wolf, thank you for hosting it. So yeah, and again, thank you, everybody. I really appreciated it. Hope this grows uh, and um, you know, really enjoyed um you know, everything that was said. Um, thank you so much, Wolf. And we'll see you guys next week. Yeah. Next week at 1 PM Pacific, we'll be here again. And, and we're going to continue this conversation. Thank you everyone for, uh, for joining us. See you next week.